May of 2008, 18-year-old Joshua Maddox bid his sister farewell and left his house to take a walk. A keen nature lover and free spirit, this was nothing unusual. However, when he didn't return, things took a strange twist. The search for Josh continued for seven long years but remained unfruitful. In 2015, less than a mile away, Chuck Murphy was demolishing his old wood cabin to make way for property development. The cabin hadn't been used in years and inside was damp. The stuffy space smelt badly of rot. As they tore down the chimney, they made a grim discovery. Crammed inside the brickwork lay the mummified body of Joshua Maddox. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Joshua Maddox lived in Woodland Park, a small city with a population of around 7,500, nestling amongst the natural beauty of the Pike National Forest in Teller County, Colorado. Josh was six feet tall, 150 pounds, and apparently something of a creative mind and a free spirit. He had a carefree attitude to life, grew his hair long, loved music. He played the guitar and spent much of his free time writing. At school, he was a bright student and was seemingly well-liked and well-known. His mother and father were divorced and Josh lived with his father, Mike, and two sisters, Kate and Ruth. On the 8th of May, 2008, he left the house telling his sister Kate that he was going out for a walk. He loved nature and often went out hiking alone, so his sister thought little of the farewell. But when he failed to return later that evening, worry settled in. Having always been such a free spirit, at first the worry was only a small nagging in the back of their minds. However, as the days passed and Josh had still not returned, his father took the sudden disappearance much more seriously and on the 13th of May called the police to report Josh missing. I got up one morning, he said, and Josh was there. Then he just never came home. The next day he still didn't come home. I called his friends, nobody had seen him. Nobody knows where he is. The searches for Josh were spread far and wide, scouring the neighborhood and wider Parkland area. Days turned to weeks and weeks turned to months, yet still no clue as to his disappearance had been uncovered. Hope of finding Josh began to fade and his sister Kate spoke of how she had always hoped that he had simply skipped town to go play music or start a different life and held on to the hope of such an eventuality. In a post online, she wrote of her brother's disappearance. Since Josh was 18, it has been reasonable to assume he may have decided to leave town to start a new life. As one of his two older sisters, I have always chosen to believe that this was the case. I have expected Josh to return home to my father's house at any time with a wife and small children so that they can meet their grandparents and two aunts. Josh has always been known for his music and literary talent so maybe we would find him playing music with a band on tour or catch him writing successful novels under a pen name so that he could keep his preferred lifestyle of solitude in the woods. They had no reason to believe that Josh had gotten involved in any trouble and he had not given them any worry or concern about his mental health. Although two years prior to his disappearance, on June the 1st, 2006, a week before his high school graduation, Josh's older brother, Zachary, had committed suicide. His father spoke about the tragic death of his son and how it had affected Josh. 
I buried his older brother two years before and it was so difficult on Josh. When his brother died, it pushed him over the edge. It was a big shock for the family and a big shock for Josh. He thought highly of his older brother. Despite this difficult period, however, his family noted that Josh had been doing well and was happy around the time he disappeared. The police had no reason to suspect any criminal activity and so listed him as a missing person. The searches continued and the missing person's file remained open. His father Mike retained ownership of the family home after they moved in case Josh would ever return, as that would be the only place he would have known to go. But news of Josh remained elusive. That was until 2015, when a local builder by the name of Chuck Murphy made a grim discovery. In 2015, Chuck Murphy, a builder from nearby Colorado Springs, was demolishing his old wood cabin. The cabin sat on a large patch of land surrounded by tall pines. It hadn't been used for over 10 years and had fallen to a state of disrepair. Chuck had made the decision to tear down the building to make way for a property development and in August the time had come to begin demolishing the decaying building. He had originally purchased the cabin in the 1950s. It had formerly been the homestead of Thunderhead Ranch, a locally infamous drinking and gambling complex owned by Big Bert Bergstroms. Bergstroms had come to America from Sweden in 1912 and run the Thunderhead Inn as a dining and drinking establishment after the end of Prohibition. On the side, however, he used the ranch as an illegal gambling den and was rumoured to offer prostitution. He was arrested by the FBI, but the jury, who one would assume enjoyed a little of what Burr offered, promptly found him not guilty. In more recent times, Chuck's brother had lived in the cabin until 2005, but since moving out it had become a storage facility and Chuck had rarely visited the property. Animals had been a problem and inside it carried an uninviting stench. As they dismantled the chimney and reached the interior, Chuck made the horrifying discovery of the body of a young man, cramped into a fetal position with his legs above his head. He called the police who arrived with the county coroner who, with the help of a forensic odontologist, used dental records to positively identify the corpse to be that of Joshua Maddox, less than a mile from his family home. The Maddox family was stunned when the news of the discovery of Josh's body was delivered. His sister Kate said, The situation doesn't make any sense at all. We were really expecting him to be anywhere else in the world and he was actually very close. The only thing we can figure is he was being an 18-year-old kid checking out a cabin. It had already been abandoned for a long time and a horrible accident had happened. Al Bourne, the Teller County Coroner, undertook an autopsy and found no evidence of any drugs in Josh's system. Speaking to the press, he stated, The hard tissue showed no signs of trauma. There were no broken bones, no knife marks. There were no bullet holes. There is so far no answers to a number of things. It is very confusing. The cabin sat on Meadowlark Lane, only two blocks from the Maddox family home yet the searches had overlooked the building. There had not been any sign of life from the old structure, it was simply concealed from suspicion due to its own banality. 
Chuck Murphy, the cabin owner himself, had rarely visited. However, on the occasions that he had had to check in, he himself had not noticed anything unusual about the property. The cabin itself stood centrally in a large plot of land surrounded by tall pines, offset from the roadside by around 50 feet. Police suggested that with no adjacent homes, if Josh had cried for help, no one would have been able to hear him regardless. It was not an instant death. How he died is only a matter of speculation, but we know he did not starve to death because that takes many weeks, said the county coroner. So then you go down the chain and you have dehydration, which can take just a few days, and the other thing would be hypothermia, which could take a day or two. We have no evidence to say which one came first. Eventually, on the 28th of September 2015, after failing to find any rational cause, Al Bourne made a ruling of accidental death. Bourne suggested that Josh had climbed down the chimney and become lodged within the brickwork. He concluded the most likely cause for death was hypothermia, as the temperature around the time of his disappearance had dropped to minus 6 degrees Celsius at its coldest. Chuck Murphy, however, found this conclusion to be far from satisfactory. Immediately following the ruling, Chuck questioned the coroner's conclusion of accidental death. Bourne had stated that Josh's position in the chimney appeared to have been a voluntary act in order to gain access. However, when he heard that, Chuck made a testimony stating that this would in fact have been impossible. The chimney had been built 20 years previously and during its construction had been fitted with a steel rebar. A large thick wire mesh hung from steel hooks used to keep animals and debris from becoming lodged inside the chimney or from entering the cabin itself. Murphy spoke openly about the rebar, stating that it was a heavy wire grate, a wire mesh. I installed it across the chimney about one row of bricks from the top. We didn't want trouble with raccoons and things getting into the chimney. This led to a subtle and public back and forth between the builder and coroner, with Bourne replying that the grate could have been rusted or corroded, and further stated, nobody saw the metal mesh. We didn't see it in any of our photos. It may have disappeared. Bourne replied that during the demolition, all metalwork had been collected and stashed into the back of a truck to be taken for scrap which would explain why the mesh was not clearly identified by the coroner as it wasn't anywhere near the chimney if it was still on the site at all at the time of the visit by the coroner. Conceding to Murphy, Bourne reopened the case three days after his initial conclusion. It was not only the rebar that caused doubt, however. There were, in fact, several other pieces of information which failed to make any sense to Murphy and had led him to doubt the coroner's report. The dots just weren't connecting. There was, for one thing, the mysterious shifting of a large wooden breakfast bar that had been torn from a wall in the kitchen and dragged over to block the chimney from inside the cabin. This fact was probably the very reason that Chuck himself had not noticed anything unusual about the chimney in the first place. However, the question remained that if the breakfast bar had been torn from the wall, then who had done it and why? Josh's body had also been found in a fetal position, with his legs above his head and disjointed from his torso. 
In order to have gotten into such a position, he would have had to have entered the chimney head first. This was a fairly unusual position, and Bourne had earlier commented that he thought it would have taken two people to position him in such a way. There was also one final question that lingered with Chuck, and it concerned no small detail. When Josh's body had been found, he had removed all of his clothing. He had been found wearing only a thin thermal shirt. This would also strike one as unusual, however, his clothes had actually been found inside the cabin, folded up next to the fireplace. This fact hadn't escaped Bourne, however. He was well aware of the clothing and remarked about them. This one really taxed our brains. We found his clothing just outside the firebox. He only had on a thermal t-shirt. We don't know why he took his clothes off, took his shoes off and socks off, and why he went outside, climbed on the roof and went down the chimney. It was not linear thinking. He quickly concluded that, given his options, that of cause of death being accidental death, murder or undetermined causes, he had to conclude that we've come up with the most plausible explanation and it will remain an accident. He did come down the chimney, that's our conclusion. Murphy's rebuttal was now less than subtle. He stated simply, there's no way that guy crawled inside that chimney with that steel webbing. He didn't come down the chimney. Murphy remained convinced that the death of Joshua Maddox had been no accident. As it happened, Alborn had mentioned that several calls had been made to both the police and the coroner's office, suggesting leads and naming suspects that had bragged of killing Josh. There was one main suspect, though he remained unnamed, he was now spending time in a Texas jail and had previous time in Seattle and Portland prisons, with a long list of violent criminal behaviour. The tips had told Bourne of how he was, apparently, the last man to have been seen with Josh, but Bourne could not place him at the crime scene. When speaking of the man, he said, They can't give me times and specifics, and we can't generate stuff that goes back seven years. He also doubted that the man would have been able to have positioned Josh in the chimney in such a position alone, and that, as far as Bourne was concerned, was the end of the suspect and that line of thinking. However, there was to be a more modern twist just around the corner. As it turned out, there was a post on Reddit in 2015, which reads as if it was made most likely from one of the very people who had called into the coroners, suspecting the previously spoken of man. The post gave a name to the suspect, which leads to many new facts. An abbreviated version of the post tells his side of the story. I went to high school with this skinny, dorky hippie named Andy who played a guitar in a band. I was never good friends with him or anything, but a year or so after I graduated, one of my good friends, Josh, started hanging out with him and then went missing. Turns out that in addition to becoming a lot scarier looking, Andy had indeed headed down to New Mexico, where he found himself shooting the shit with the caretaker of a disabled guy and got invited over to their apartment. Caretaker gets in the shower, and when he comes back out, the disabled guy is stabbed to death and Andy's gone. When Andy got arrested, he also claimed to have killed a woman in Taos and stuffed her body in a barrel. The cops had indeed found a woman stuffed in a barrel in Taos, 
but had already had somebody in custody for it and decided to stick with that guy instead. Years later, I found out that the caretaker had died in a bar fight, and without him, the cops didn't have much in the way of evidence somehow, so that case against Andy was dropped too. Several of us went to the cops saying, yo, Josh you went missing was last seen with Andy who's a murderer, maybe you should check that out? Despite a fair amount of pestering, nothing ever really came of it. And by nothing, I mean that the police mostly didn't even return our calls. And once accidentally cancelled the bulletin on Josh because he's alive and well and living in the next town over. He wasn't. He was actually in the chimney of an abandoned cabin like two blocks from his parents' house. The coroner said the body had been there for about seven years and ruled the death accidental, concluding that Josh had probably climbed down the chimney in an attempt to break into the house and gotten stuck, which, given the age of the corpse, doesn't seem overly ridiculous. Except for the fact that, in addition to Josh having last been seen with Andy, immediately before his stabbing spree, people called in to report having heard rumours that Andy was bragging about having put Josh in a hole. Somebody had ripped a heavy bar off the wall in the kitchen and propped it against the fireplace. Or the fact that Josh's stuff was already inside the cabin, meaning A, he'd already broken in and would have had to lock himself out and to have to go for the chimney, and B, he might have noticed that either the flue or the big bar would have prevented him from getting in through the fireplace. Or the fact that when he was found, Josh's knees were above his head, which sounds to me like he would have had to go in head first. Disclaimer. I'm not an expert at fucking all. Or maybe the fact that Josh was barefoot and naked from the waist down. This is just my opinion, but I don't care who you are. You don't try to climb head first into a chimney via a hole rusted through a metal grate with your dick hanging out. As far as I can tell, nobody even bothered to call Andy to ask if he knew anything. By the way, from what I hear, Andy's still out and about doing his thing when he's not in the mental hospital. All I'm saying is, I wish they had done some police shit, open an investigation, try to track down some leads, interview some of the folks who have been calling in tips for the last seven years, maybe check for some semen or something, I don't know, don't just say accidental, dust off your hands and call it a day. As it happens, Andy does in fact exist. He was also a music lover, he played in a band and apparently lived quite a free lifestyle himself. It is not unthinkable, one might suggest, that Andy and Josh may very well have known of each other. Andy's full name was Andrew Richard Newman. He was arrested on suspicion of a fatal stabbing in New Mexico that went exactly as the Reddit post had described. During high school, he had played guitar in a band named the Balmers and was also well-known and seemingly well-liked. On an article about his arrest for the New Mexico stabbing, there are several replies from users who had gone to school with him that describing as intelligent and a very smart guy. Although he seems to have left the state and travelled nomadically around the country after graduating high school, he kept in contact with many of his old friends. One would believe that it is not at all a grand stretch of imagination to place Andy and Josh together. They shared similar interests and similar outlooks on life. If that is the case, however, the post on Reddit sums it up quite well with the line, all I'm saying is, I wish they had done some police shit.
The case of Joshua Maddox is utterly perplexing for several reasons. It seems fairly safe to presume that Chuck Murphy is to be believed concerning the rebar in the chimney. After all, what possible reason would he have to lie about the existence of it in the first place? However, when one starts to consider the other outlying factors, the clothes by the fireplace, the breakfast bar dragged to cover the fireplace, and the numerous tip-offs concerning Andy, the biggest mystery is perhaps, why on earth was Andy not in the very least pulled in for questioning? In a follow-up post on the same Reddit thread, the user who posted the original post stated that he believed Andy to now be housed in a mental hospital somewhere. Whether or not the case will ever be reopened or further investigated remains to be seen, though in the past two years it remains dark and the official conclusions of the county coroner stand. Thanks for listening, please rate, subscribe and sleep tight. Thanks for listening. Uh, so this week we went more on a sort of regular true crime binge. And I actually found this case, sort of stumbled across it when I was looking for something completely unrelated to the podcast. And at first it was the mystery that kind of drew me in and then I read about it more through posts on Reddit and just it became infuriating and and it seems quite low key. There's um there's very little about it on the internet outside of a few old newspaper articles and a couple of posts. So I really wanted to kind of put it together in a story and get it out there because it's uh, it's it's a really bizarre case I think and and the county coroner, my God. It's just so infuriating reading his quotes at times. Like, I, like when I first read the quote where he said about, oh, you know, we don't know why he took his clothes off or his shoes and socks off, and then why he went outside and climbed on the roof and went down the chimney, it was not linear thinking. If you can't figure that out and you think it's strange, it's because it is strange. Like, like and and when I first read it, it was. It just made me angry. And then, and when I was reading it out, when I was recording it, I was just struggling so hard not to, to keep a kind of straight tone of voice without just putting on like a sarcastic tone or, or just, I mean, come on, man. Like, <laughs> how's this guy got a job? But anyway, um, yeah, let me know what you think. I thought it was really interesting and, and, um, it, obviously massively tragic. Uh, and, I'm not sure what his family think about it. I assume they've kind of made their peace with it, but obviously the owner of the cabin, Chuck Murphy, has not. But, you know, there it is. So, yeah, that was this week's episode. And let me know what you think about it. Uh, if you have any thoughts, get in touch. Oh, yeah, and I'll post an image of the original Reddit posts because I I did shorten that down and abbreviate it. But I was unable to get hold of the the original writer, um, and so I'll post an image of it with the username edited because I'm not entirely sure if it would be that cool to broadcast his name without consent, as, especially since he says he knew Josh. Um, it might not be great to suddenly start being contacted again about it all. But I'll post up a edited version if anyone wants to read that. So yeah, that's that. That's, that's, that's Joshua Maddox. Next week will be the final episode of 2017. I'm going to be taking a short break over the Christmas period and then coming back with a story of a bizarre cult and a body in the River Thames in the first week of January. 
However, in the downtime, I'd really like to drop a special out-of-season episode. So what I'd like to ask of you guys is uh, a little bit of help. So I'll be taking some time off over Christmas because I just won't have the time to put the episodes together, but it's mainly the writing and research that consumes my time rather than the recording. So what I would love to do is a kind of a Christmas campfire episode um, where you guys send your real life stories that you feel are related to the theme of the podcast and I'll make an episode with the best and weirdest, creepiest campfire tales. Um, I'm going to drop my own story out there, which I've only ever told to about two or three people in my entire life. So just letting you know, it won't be only you guys that are going to be putting yourself out there. Um, the stories can be about paranormal experiences, ghosts, strange happenings, anything you like. Though if you're a murderer, it might be best to keep that to yourself. Uh, so yeah, the deadline, let's say the deadline will be uh, the 24th of December on Christmas Eve and the episode, I'll record the episode around about that time. And it'll be a nice way to bridge the gap of taking some time off. It'll be a nice way to spend the off-season time, basically. Um, and it'd be good just to, you know, hear from you guys and, and get to know you guys a little bit and you can get your stories out there. So, oh yeah, but but do make sure um, to let me know if you'd like to remain anonymous or not um, when you get in touch um, because I'll obviously I'll read out the, the names of who wrote the stories unless you don't want me to. So make sure you let me know. Um, you can send your stories to me via email at contact at darkhistories.com or if you go to my website at darkhistories.com, you'll find a contact page there. You can fill out the form and it will be sent directly to me. So yeah, hopefully that'll be like a nice fun episode to do on the off season. I'd just like to say a big, big thank you to my new Patreon patrons for supporting the show, Stephanie Kautzman, Jess and Molly Smith. Thank you so much. It really, really is helping. And I'm almost at the point now where I can look at repurposing my hosting fees to the show. So I can either upgrade the hosting, which might be useful, um, or I can start upgrading my equipment. Um, so thank you so much. If you enjoy the show and are interested in supporting, you can find all the relevant information on the website at darkhistories.com forward slash support. And all... As always, extended show notes are available on darkhistories.com with maps and links. If you'd like to contact me, you can find me on Twitter at Dark Histories, which is where I'm most active. And there's a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Dark Histories podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating or review in iTunes or relevant listening app of your choice. Please share it with your friends and family and all those good things. And thanks again for listening. So yeah, cheers. I'll see you next week.